Well, good morning, church. The ushers are coming through with an outline for you and a pencil and a Bible. You will need a Bible, of course. An outline is if it's there if you want it, if you feel like it'll help you. There are some quotes on it as well. I figured I would write those on there so that way you can have those if you uh, so like to. We're going to be, let me make a quick announcement first. We also, um, we're going to start having a nursery uh, from now on going forward as well, Lord willing, as long as we can find people to staff it, only for the time of the main service, not, so not during Sunday school, up to three years old is what, I, is what I believe that we were saying is going to be, and it's going to be, it'll be on um, every Sunday except for the first Sunday of the month. The first Sunday of the month, there'll be no nursery that day, but uh, the second, third, fourth, maybe the, f- and the fifth when we have it. If there's the ability to staff it, our, ga- our aim, our intention is to try to have a nursery. There'll be a live stream option in there as well, but um, if you want to take advantage of that, you are welcome to uh, going forward. We're going to be in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians this morning, so please go ahead and open up to there. It's a short chapter, so I figured we could just read the whole thing to remind us of the context of what the Apostle Paul is writing about. And really, the context here goes all the way actually into chapter 10, and then even uh, chapter 8 a little bit as well it gets discussed in there. But the most immediate context of the text that we have for this morning is all of chapter 8. So it's such a short, I think we could read it all. Uh, the points the Apostle Paul is making, by the way, in this passage, are the same points that he was making in Romans 14, the passage that we read in our call to worship this morning. And so they, both Romans 14 and, and the text that we have for this morning, they need to be understood in light of what the opening of chapter 8 in 1 Corinthians says. So let's pick it up at verse 1. The reading, of, and then we'll pray afterwards. The reading of the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1 in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom, we are, all, who, excuse me, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Uh, May he grant us understanding. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time to be in your word this morning. And we know how instructive it is for our life. And we know how it is that our nature, apart from being born again, most certainly 
would reject the wisdom that is offered in your words. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would soften our hearts this morning, that you might help us to truly know what it is that you have to say to us. Help me, Lord, to, to be out of the way. I need this text just as much as anybody else, Lord. So please speak to us through your word. Give us understanding. Make us to be sanctified and mature in Christ so that we might glorify your wonderful and majestic name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So uh, we started this section a few weeks ago, and we saw that there was this kind of knowledge that is unbecoming for a Christian, a kind of knowledge that a Christian shouldn't have. And not all knowledge itself is bad, of course. Uh, we, we know that we need knowledge, knowledge of Christ, knowledge of sin and the appeasement therein, uh, which Christ, of course, accomplishes himself. And the Christian life is one of which consists of growing in this knowledge even, but if we divorce that knowledge from love, or if that knowledge leads to pride and selfishness, if it leads to self-love over love for others, then as Pastor Nick said, it's a knowledge that needs to be deflated. If it lends itself to you being puffed up and arrogant and lacking in love, rather than growing in love toward God and toward your fellow man, then it's a misuse of knowledge and quite dangerous, as we're going to see in our text for this morning, actually. Last week, we got to the middle part, and we had to consider the issues behind this specific problem plaguing the Corinthian church. Some people were, were still seeped in their paganism, and this was something that they needed to grow out of, but they hadn't yet. And so for them to eat food offered to an idol, perhaps even in the temple itself, it was drawing them back into idolatry. And so Paul makes the case that there is only one God, one true God who is totally other than all of creation. He, Yahweh, is independent of creation, whereas everything else that exists, anyone and anything else that exists, is dependent upon Yahweh. This is testimony of Scripture from page 1. Now, to the credit of these people in Corinth and to the testimony of the Word, there are other beings in Scripture that are referred to as Elohim, or El, E-L, the Hebrew word for God, a divine being, in other words. But from our point of view, lowercase g gods, right? Uh, scripture mentions by name a number of different Canaanite and Philistine gods. There are Egyptian gods and, of course, the Roman ones that we are dealing with in the New Testament. Now, whether these are a creation of mankind's fallen imagination that loves to idolize, such as the case with like Aaron and the golden calf, right? That golden calf actually was representing what Yahweh did, but Aaron in his fallen imagination creates this calf and you know, breaks the, um, the commandments of the Lord in doing so, or if it is a created being that Yahweh decrees to lead the hard-hearted astray, we may not always know uh, what, what these lowercase g gods are. But the issue here in 1 Corinthians, we do know because of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and also in many instances in the Old Covenant promised land, there was actually a demonic presence behind these false idols. The apostles' main point here, though, is that whatever these so-called gods and so-called lords actually are, is that you know, they, really, they have more in common with the bacteria on the bottom of your shoe than they do with Yahweh. They're, they're, not, they're nowhere equal to our God. There is no God but one, the triune God, and we shouldn't even get close to thinking that something can compare to our God. Now, what we're ultimately thinking about here, I think, is how our theology impacts life. So in a sense, and Nick actually mentioned this in his prayer even, uh, all of life is theological. 
And, as, and we as the church must be about theology. We must, by grace, strive to be biblical, good theologians. Uh, because, you know, the, the choices that we make, the lives that we live, are directly impacted and related by, or to the thought, impacted by and related to the theology and the doctrine that we profess. What you do on the Lord's Day, uh, the priority you give it or the priority you don't give it, it's theological. The way you treat your spouse, your neighbor, it's all related to what you believe about God. There's not an area of your life that is not impacted by theology. And for many, though, Theology has a dry and arid connotation. Uh, for others, theology is the necessary objective backdrop for understanding the teaching of the Bible as a whole. Now, those in the first category, you've got to wonder why anybody would think that about theology, even I mean, because God is not arid and, and dry, right? So that's not a good take. The, the second group sounds a little better, but it falls short as well. I mean, considering theology as simply a necessary objective backdrop for understanding what the teaching of the Bible says ends up turning theology into a purely intellectual endeavor. It's the sort of error that could, that could I'm saying could, could lead to the kind of behavior that we're reading about in Corinth. To consider theology is to do more than simply engage our minds. Theology is ultimately about knowing the right God, the right way, and for the right reasons. Uh, theology is truth rightly applied. So I want to explain that to you just a little bit this morning. So I put on your outline, on the back, page, the back side of it, a series of quotations on the subject. Uh, for, for Peter Van Maastricht, he's a, a 17th century theologian, he said theology was the doctrine of living for God through Christ. That's in Theoretical Practical Theology, Volume 1. Peter Ramus. A Puritan said, theology is a science of living well. It's interesting to call it even a science, right? The older generations called theology the queen of the sciences. And it's neglected as a science today in the public school system, at least. But theology is a science, the queen, the best of all the sciences. It sets everything else in order, even. And then he says, he says, this is not simply a mere acquaintance with matters relating to it, but use and practice. Living well means living in harmony and conformity with God, who is the source of all good things. I mean, that's a theological statement, isn't it? Uh, William Perkins, in his famous The Golden Chain, a theology is the science of living blessedly forever. Blessed life consists in the knowledge of God. William Ames, in his marrow of sacred divinity, says divinity, which means theology, is the doctrine of living to God. Now, why go into a little bit of historical theology to start off our lesson this morning? Well, it's because of the very simple fact that what you see in these quotes is that for our, these, our forefathers in the faith, they did not separate theology from life. In fact, for them, theology is life. In fact, theology impacts the way that you not only think, but the way that you actually live. And so theology has to do with absolutely everything. We, we can't undersell it. Obviously, I think theology is important, and I want for you all to love and appreciate theology, but not so that our heads are filled up, not so that we can just simply win a debate on Facebook or wherever it is debates about theology happen, uh, the YouTube comment section, I don't know. But it, it's, it's the hopes, it's in the hope that this will translate to you all loving and appreciating the God that you know more. That's why theology is important. Theology has to do with living. It has to do with what you do in the morning, how you do your work during the day. So theology, which doesn't impact or shape the life, 
our Christian forefathers would have said, it's not true theology then. It rests simply in the, in the sphere of speculation, but it's not true theology because true theology is to be lived. It's not just something you know. It shapes your life. So one of the things that we see in this passage with the Corinthians is that theology can often be misapplied, misused, and then abused. That's a reality, right? I mean, that's how we have every theological cult, even. So, so get this in your minds, all right? On the one hand, true theology is theology that affects life. It helps us to live unto God. On the other hand, false theology is theology that is neither, or, or either never applied or it's misapplied in a way that we not only end up misusing doctrine, Christian teaching, but end up going into error. And the Corinthians' issue at this point is with the doctrine of Christian liberty. And it's possible for this kind of error, when we approach theology with a proper reverence, to be made in many areas even. I mean, think about the doctrine of, of uh, God's sovereignty. It's a true doctrine. It's a comfort to us. It means that nothing in life is meaningless, even the trials and the difficult things that we go through. It gives us hope and joy and a great confidence that the things which happen are for our good and for God's glory, which we love. God is in control and all things are happening according to the counsel of His will being worked through His divine providence. So then, I mean, should you just never go to the hospital for routine checkups at specific ages because of the reason of God's sovereignty? I mean, God is sovereign, and whatever happens, happens according to the counsel of his will, right? Thinking of, thinking of God's sovereignty like that is how you potentially end up missing a serious illness until it's too late. You know, don't, don't do that. Don't take something that is true and misapply it and misuse it in a way that makes it, in a sense, untrue, right? Because that's not what the sovereignty of God is, right? The sovereignty of God is not about me and you being absolutely passive as if we don't have any moral agency or responsibility. God ordains the end, but he also ordains the means to that end. And so you can see how you could take something true, misuse it, misapply it, and then it leads into error. There are other examples I thought of as well. So for instance, does the Bible teach that the man, the husband, is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church? Absolutely, it does, right? It's very clear, it's very plain. How easily is that misapplied, though, misused and abused, and then turned into error? So instead of a loving servant leadership, which is how Christ is the head of the church, it becomes this domineering, tyrannical, authoritarian thing, which ends up undermining the very truth that it's pretending to apply. And the Corinthian church here is essentially doing that same sort of thing in this passage. So what are they doing? They're saying, well, well first of all, theological point number one we know there's no such thing as an idol. And then number two, they're saying there's only one true and living God. And then their conclusion from that knowledge, from what they know to be true, is that it's okay if we go into the temple and eat this meat that's offered to these idols. So the Corinthians, the Corinthian elites, if you will, these, remember I've been calling them the theologians of glory who neglect the cross of Christ, they were actually misapplying for self-serving reasons, and by the way, I would, I would argue that most of the time when we misapply or misuse something that's true, we misapply it and misuse it in a self-serving way, in a way that is good for us. Most of the time, we're not just simply misunderstanding something. Most of the time, there's something in it for us. So for instance, you know, to abuse the sovereignty of God, it's self-serving because it what? It justifies maybe... You know, your laziness. 
your fear. Uh, to misuse and abuse the doctrine of headship, may, maybe it just simply justifies my own meanness or my own like, tendency to be in control. And so you can, you can go right across the board and you can think about all different kinds of truths that can be misused, misapplied, and abused. And oftentimes, the motivation behind them is something that ends up being self-serving. Well, this is what the Corinthians are doing. They're taking things that Paul would have agreed with in principle, correct? I mean, we would agree with these things in principle, correct? Uh, no such thing as an idol and only one true living God. But then they're turning around and they are applying it in such a way that they end up serving themselves. And what Paul wants them to see is that they are profoundly wrong in doing this. Even though doctrinally, I mean, they've crossed all their T's, they've dotted all their I's, the application from it is totally in the wrong direction of where it should be. The application of the truth is so far off that it nearly makes their affirmation of the truth meaningless. And worse, the way that they implement this theology, it's leading them to error and destroying, verse 11, other Christians. So in verse 7 through 13, we're going to see that Paul starts applying the truth of this, excuse me, applying the truth that he knows to their situation. And so this is one of the good things about the ESV, that they put quotes in the text so that you know what the Corinthians were probably saying, what Paul's responding to. So as a way of reminder, what were the Corinthians saying again? You can look there in chapter 8. It says, and in verse 1, we know, we know that we all have knowledge. Verse 4, an idol has no real existence and there is no God but one. These are those Corinthian slogans. They are the Corinthian theological nails that they hang their hats upon. And quite frankly, they're, I mean, they're a lot better than some of the slogans we've been introduced to in previous chapters, right? But then what, what does the Apostle Paul do is he turns around, and without denying it because the slogans are actually true, there's no reality behind an idol, no reality comparable to God, idols are false gods, and Paul's, that's not Paul's last word about that, by the way. Again, um, he's going to mention it when we get to chapter 10, that there's demonic powers behind some of these idols. So Paul acknowledges that what the Corinthians are, is, are saying is true, but then he turns around, he turns them around through the use of maybe something that he, either he wrote or maybe it was a, a, an ancient hymn or a creed that you see in verse 6. And there's quotes around it again. It says, but there is but one, or there's not quotes there. Um, it says, there is but one God and Father from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things, and we exist through him, we are through him. So what, does, so what Paul does is Paul takes that the tr truth that the Corinthians were grabbing onto but misapplying, and then Paul turns around and he's going to do two things with this truth. So again, he quotes this ancient hymn or this creed or maybe it's his own saying, and in doing so, he adds, in a sense, by quoting that, he adds a dimension to the Corinthians' understanding that they had totally missed, that they were not grabbing onto. And he points out that through this one God are all things and that we exist for him. So what Paul is doing, Paul's actually showing the, the Corinthians that theology, that theology ends up having two massive Im implications. And one is doxology. We know that is right. Doxology is praise that flows from theology. And the other th thing, or excuse me, it's praise that's rooted in who God is and what God has done. And the other thing is ethics the moral principles on how our life is governed. In other words, theology is not just something that you state as some sort of abstract principle and then 
that, that exists out there and then go, oh yeah, you know, that, that's what I believe. It's not just an engagement with your mind. For Paul, theology leads to worship, right? It leads to, it leads to life. So this living life. So this God, this one true God, he is the one through whom are all things. And then there's the ethical implication, we exist for him. And the Corinthians don't have this part down, okay? They're using theology, but they're not allowing that theology to shape their life and their conduct. And so Paul goes that direction. And so when he gets to verse 7, he's going to start showing how this now applies. So how do you take these glorious truths about the Father and the Son and bring them into daily life in the community for the, uh, for the practice of, the, of application to the people of God? Well, this is what Paul's going to do. He's going to show us the ethical significance of what it means for there to be one true and living God. He starts by saying this, Not everyone has this knowledge. That's how verse 7 begins. However, not everyone has this knowledge. Now, from the immediate context, it would seem as if Paul is saying, Not everyone knows that there is but one God and Father from whom are all things in Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. Well, actually, you know, Everyone has that knowledge, but they suppress that truth and unrighteousness. Romans 1 tells us that. But I don't think that's actually what Paul is talking about when he said not everyone has this knowledge, because in the text, it kind of reads more like not everyone has this knowledge. He's speaking about something that he's going to go on and, and reject, a knowledge that he rejects. So I agree with Gordon Fee, his commentary, that it's a reference to the Corinthian idea of what this knowledge means. And so for the Corinthians, what this knowledge means is not just the content that there's one true God, there's no such thing as an idol, but also the result of that doctrine, which is I can go into a temple and eat food sacrificed to idols. I can go into the market and buy leftover offerings and this won't impact any other believers. That's the knowledge that he's opposed to. Not everyone has that knowledge that they can do that. It's not a positive thing that he's saying here. He's not praising them. He's actually saying something quite negative. And then Paul says the reason that not everyone has this kind of knowledge is because some of them in their, in their former life, in paganism, that this paganism still has a major influence on the way that they think, on the way that they live, and the way that they think about this meat offered to idols. Look at the rest of verse 7. It says, but some, in other words, some of the people in the Corinthian congregation, through former association with idols, eat food as if really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So listen, the, the context of what we're dealing with is a religious matter. This isn't a matter of indifference, of like brands of food or something like that. This has to do with right worship and false worship, right? You see that here in the text. There is false worship going on, and the involvement of some Christians in it, even though they reject the idea that they're worshiping in it, they reject every principle about it. The act of them simply doing it is damaging the consciences of other believers. Believers that the apostle identifies as weak. So try to put yourself in the situation if you can. Corinth is filled with idol worshipers. Business deals and commercial transactions would be held even sometimes in the temples themselves. And part of the transaction would entail an offering of meat to a false deity. And then as part of the transaction, the two parties would come together and they would share this meal. as like an act of camaraderie and trust between the two groups. And so that they would be able, and then any meat that was left over, they would then sell into the marketplace where the public would end up buying it. So it would be religious meat there even in the marketplace. And some believers had no problem engaging in these types of business deals. They would go, and they, this is how they were accustomed to living, and they had in their minds that, oh, this is all fake anyway, so I might as well just go ahead and do it. 
And then you have some people in the church that are actually scandalized by this because they're thinking, well, I came out of that. I used to go into that idol, that idol temple, and I worshipped there through that, through that meat offering. Eating that, that meat offered to the idol was an act of my allegiance to that deity that I now know is false. And I, I, you know, I used to eat that meat as an act of a ritual worship, and I, I can't go back there. And so so there's, those are the, the people with the weak conscience. And then later what Paul says that those people see you sitting in the temple eating the meat, verse 10, and guess what happens to them in all of this? Their conscience is defiled, verse 7. Why? Because for them, they don't think of the idol as nothing. For them, they don't think that eating Corinthian religious meat isn't important. They think eating meat is an act of participation in the pagan worship, right? And, and actually, the reality is, is that they're right about this. The Apostle Paul is going to shut it down altogether in chapter 10. He actually even talks about, um, you know, in, in chapter 11, he talks about going to the Lord's table as participation in, in Christ's work. Well, the same thing. These people are, even though they maybe know that these idols are not real, it's participation in this false worship. So he's going to altogether shut it down in chapter 10. But we're just starting uh, Paul's argumentation here, and the liberty that we're discussing, more on that in a moment, concerns an act of religious worship. We're not talking about preferential matters. This isn't about minutia. And so these so-called weak Christians, that's not a good thing, right? He's not praising them by saying that they're these weak, that they're these people who have a weak conscience. They can't think about this in any other way, and so their conscience is defiled. Their already weak conscience is made to get worse. And more on that in verse 11. Uh, David Garland says, A person's conscience is defiled through idolatry and that it's akin to a compass being demagnetized so that it no longer points true north. Right? So you don't know what's right and what's the right way to go. That's the idea. We know what a conscience is, correct? It's not something physical you could touch. But it's this inner guiding system that all people possess in creation. It's the light of nature in man. It's part of our human nature. It's described by others as like a storehouse of facts, uh, the, the silent dictator. It's a library of events and experiences. It's the, the heart of man, not the physical, literal heart, right? It's a spiritual bank, as it were, which has written on it the work of the law, we're told in Romans 2.15, if a person is not saved, and then actually even the law itself, the law of God itself is written on a person's heart, this, this non-literal heart, this conscience and will, this part of the human nature that is not material. When a person is saved, the actual law itself is written on it. So all people are moral agents. Every person is a moral agent. The conscience instructs us as to what is right and wrong, and Scripture reveals that the conscience can change. And by the way, the conscience isn't perfect at this. Right? That's why, praise the Lord, we have special revelation, so we may know. But the conscience can change, especially in the sense of someone being saved. Right? It speaks of, uh, the Scripture that is, speaks of different kinds of consciences even. And so I'm just going to go through these kind of quickly for the sake of time. I modified this list actually from a, a Bible study that I got uh, with past, uh, Pastor Jesse Gastan maybe a decade ago, and he, and he talks about these different consciences. But as I go through these lists of different consciences, think about which one maybe describes you, or maybe which one you, know, you don't want to have even as well, okay? So these are the different types of consciences that the Bible mentions. Number one, the good conscience. So Acts 
1 Timothy 1.19, the good conscience. Acts 21, 1 Timothy 1.19. This is the conscience which is informed by, by the truth. It knows God and responds to events and situations with a real sense of responsibility before God. In Acts 23, Paul says that he lives his life before God with a clear conscience. He or she strives to be honest or they must meet God on God's terms. This person is not seeking perfection. He's not seeking their own interests, only honesty. This is the good conscience. And closely related to it is what Scripture defines as the pure or the clear conscience. The pure or the clear conscience, that's Hebrews 9, 14, or 2 Timothy 1, 3. This is the conscience which has applied to it the atonement of Christ. It has felt the power of forgiveness, and it knows the virtue of continually washing in the blood of Christ, of, of remembering the gospel, in other words, and so as to maintain a true heart in approaching the living God by faith in all that Christ is for them all the time. This is the one who knows that what God requires and will not neglect the sanctifying grace from God or, or for any other means of access, acceptance before God. They understand the value of God's sacrifice. They fear God and they worship Him. They find joy in His love, and, they, and, and that brings them before God. This is the conscience of a true worshiper whose, whose only boast is Christ. And then we have what we have here in our text, the weak conscience. So 1 Corinthians 8, 7 through 12. This is the person who is not experienced in the Word of God, the ways of God, and what is good and acceptable in the will of God. They operate out of fear, ignorance, superstition, and feeling. Uh, the storehouse of facts for them does not place things in the proper category because there is, there is no biblical reference point to their experiences. There's not enough to formulate the necessary categories of sound biblical values and convictions. Think of these Corinthians, right? Their reference point is still the pagan ritual that they used to be part of. Right? They're not thinking about it from the truths of God's word. They lack the maturity which only comes with time, prayer, and, sens and a sensitive search for the truth. Meanwhile, they can be tossed to and fro by manipulators. The vast majority of non-diligent professing Christians, Pastor Jesse would go on to say that such people seldom enter into, into a true grace experience with Christ. Uh, Charles Hodge in his commentary says, A weak conscience is one which either regards as wrong what is not in fact, or one which is not clear and decided in its judgments. The ironic thing in our text, though, is that we really don't get to this till chapter 10, is that these people with a weak conscience are actually correct about the practice of eating meat offered to idols. That's the Jerusalem council, by the way, right? Acts 15, do not eat meat with the blood in it or meat offered to idols. That's what they told Paul as he went out to the Gentiles. They're the apostles, um, you know, they, they urge the same thing, to not mix with that type of um, meat. And by the way, we aren't making any comments right now about the consciences of the people with knowledge here. Just because the people with a weak conscience are being burdened, that doesn't mean that the people who are eating the idol meat have a strong conscience or a good conscience or anything like that. It's bad to have a weak conscience, but it's also bad to do what these people are doing to the people with the weak conscience. So the Bible also speaks of a fourth type of conscience, an evil conscience. It's Hebrews 10.22 and John 8.9. This is the conscience that knows it's guilty before God. The law of God has effectively indicted him, and yet he has yet to find a remedy. The evil conscience has not found power in the gospel, in forgiveness and grace through Christ, and so the evil conscience walks away from Christ as it were. 
It therefore is tormented with guilt, which will lead him to destroy himself in deeds of wickedness, as, as is the case for the person who lives for, for who lives for pleasure and not for God. There's also what's called, fifthly, the defiled conscience. Scripture speaks of a conscience that is defiled. Titus 1.5, Romans 1, 2 to 32. Uh, this is the conscience that lives just comfortably with perversion, with self-pleasure and carnal gratification. It's an earthly mindset which accepts all kinds of wickedness and feels no need to embrace a right standing with God. It will justify every evil deed and doctrine as long as it serves Him. If it feels good, then it's enough. And I, I, I tend to think that's kind of the... The, describing the example of the people who are offending those with a weak conscience, actually. But we're not going to get to that in this text, at least. And then lastly, the Bible talks about one last kind of conscience, the seared conscience. 1 Timothy 4.9, Hebrews 6.8. It's the conscience at its hardest point. It is, it's at this point, the human conscience is essentially useless in making true moral assessments to the mind. It's people who are past feeling, people who can function without guilt, without moral alarm or true justice at all. It is the epitome of selfishness. It's the person who calls what is evil good and what is good evil. Now, these are all tidy little categories, but experience would say that most people are probably actually in a mixture of a few of these, if we're thinking of it like that. A person could be partly in one and partly in another, or maybe two others, for example. Um, for example, maybe a person's conscience is defiled when it comes to the matter of abortion, and so they'll be totally fine with going and having an abortion and not think twice about it. But, you know, they won't steal a car. They'll think that's wrong. You know, well, so, so they're worse off in one area than they are maybe in another area. And then certainly as well, uh, you, you, can have, you can see how a person would have a clear conscience and a good conscience at the same time, I would think. The point, though, is that exposure to sin, living in sin embracing sin, not repenting of sin, will damage your conscience so that eventually you do more wickedness yourself with less guilt about it because your conscience is damaged. This is what's happening to the consciences of those in Corinth. They're being drawn to sin and it's doing damage to their already weak conscience. They're being led astray. And he's, Paul's going to offer a serious rebuke about it in just a moment. Notice verse 8. This is analogous to verse 1. It seems that this contains a principle that was adopted by the apostle himself. It comes across as if it's another one of those Corinthian slogans, but there's no quotes on it, of course, so maybe it's not a slogan. The following verse does reinforce the slogan aspect of it, but note what it says. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. It sounds sloganish, right? Probably just made that word up, but it sounds like a slogan. Uh, it's reminiscent of something that Paul's already said in this book in 1 Corinthians 6, 12. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. But look at his point here. It's an important point that we don't want to miss. He's thinking about food in general here. It would seem that way at least. He, he's probably not thinking about meat that has been knowingly offered to idols because he's got a lot to say about that. For Paul, his food category would be what's that things that are clean and things that are unclean, things that are kosher and things that are not kosher. So, you know, we should thank God for the new covenant. We can have ham, we can have bacon, we can have all kinds of shellfish. And what's the reason? It's because food will not commend us to God. You're not better off if you do eat and worse off if you don't eat. Someone may choose to be a vegetarian. 
I don't know why anybody would, but <laughs> maybe a health reason, right? No, people, there's health reasons, maybe. But, yeah, it's not going to commend you to God. It bears no spiritual significance what you eat or what you don't eat. Not in the new covenant. It doesn't commend us to God. Literally, food does not cause us to, quote, stand near to God. Keep your fingers here so we could come back to it. What is it that commends us to God? Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 1 and 2. Most of us are probably familiar with this chapter, so you probably already know what it is that commends us to God. But Hebrews 11, 1 and 2 says this. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old receive their commendation. So what commends us to God is not food, but it is faith that commends us to God. It's by the gift of faith that we draw near to God. Remember what Ephesians 2 says. For by grace you have been saved through what? Through faith. And that this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no man may boast. Abstaining from this, uh, partaking of that, it doesn't make you right before God. It doesn't change your status before God. Now, he's not saying here, I'm not saying here that we can just do whatever we want, right? That would be to remove the whole force of the, of the chapter. The point being is the things that we do or don't do are all attached to the faith that we already have or perhaps don't have. And so for the faith-filled Christian, eating or abstaining from this or that, and different things at least, it doesn't matter. Christian brothers and sisters, you have a faith that commends you to God. You have in that gift of faith the righteousness of Christ accredited to you. It's not your own righteousness. In a legal standing from the point of God through faith, you're exactly as righteous as the Son of God himself. How wonderful is that? Uh, you, can you be more righteous than that? You can't, right? You can't be any more righteous than that. It's his life, his death, his resurrection that justifies you. Faith in Christ is what commends us to God because the object of our faith is Christ who is perfectly righteous. Christ himself is perfectly just. What a savior we have. What a, what a salvation we have. Amen. And because of that, we are free in Christ. If the Son sets you free, you shall be free in? Indeed. Amen. That's right. Now, here's where it gets a little bit tricky. Our context. Christians have liberty. And I don't want to undersell this point because it's very important. The concept of Christian liberty needs to be felt, it needs to be experienced, it needs to be understood. But look at verse 9 in our text. He says, But take care that this right, this liberty, this freedom, specifically to eat meat in general, that's the context of verse 8, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And so the apostle isn't actually praising them here, praising their liberty here. I take what he's saying as to be a derogatory statement. This liberty of yours, this authority of yours, this authority which you think you have, you have to be careful, you need to watch out to make sure that this so-called authority of yours does not do, that it does not become a stumbling block to the, to, to the weak, to the one who is determined to not eat, of course. And Paul's about to give a really serious warning here. It's very possible that this term right or liberty actually may be a catchphrase that the Corinthians were incredibly fond of. You have to remember who you're dealing with, with these uh, brothers and sisters here in Corinth. 
the larger context of 1 Corinthians is, is there's this idea that because these people had a certain knowledge, they had certain rights to be able to do what they wanted to do. And, and because of that, they seem to neglect the cross and, and live as if life is all about pleasure no matter what the cost. And that's not Christianity. Christianity entails sacrifice. It entails suffering. You count the cost. You take up your cross daily and you follow Christ. And there's certainly a joy intermingled in whatever we go through because we are united to Christ as we do that. But these Corinthians have it all backwards. They are by and large focused on themselves and what they can do. How easy is that to happen to us today as well? And the cost here for these Corinthians are these people who are weak and yet um, still are professing faith in the Lord. Now, that's not what Christian liberty is about. In a day and age where, even in our Christian faith, where this idea of liberty seems to be shrouded in almost like a mysticalism, people talk about being led this way or that way, and they want to say what you must do or what you should do or what you shouldn't do. But the doctrine of Christian liberty sets us free, actually, on the one hand, and it gives us freedom to know what we must do. Christian liberty is tied directly to and very closely to the person of Christ and his cross. Our tendency, at least in our minds, is to think about Christian liberty in terms of, you know, what I have the freedom to do. And which, don't get me wrong, there are certainly some implications for what we have the freedom to do according to the liberty of conscience. But maybe most immediately, the closest application is understanding what Christ has done for us and how he has purchased our liberty. Christ has purchased spiritual freedom. He has set us at liberty and he's given us peace with God. That's the main thing that we should be thinking about when we think about Christian liberty, not what I can do. We're not trying to get up to a line of what we can do before going beyond Christian liberty. But it's a sad thing that actually this discussion upon Christian liberty tends to focus on minutia. Can I do this? Can I do that? Should I not do that? When in reality, it ought to focus on the cross and the work of Christ and the blessing that he has purchased on our behalf. And whenever you hear the word should, brothers and sisters, you need to be a careful Christian at that point. Is there a verse of Scripture attached to that should? Or a principle drawn from Scripture attached to that should? If not, you might actually be outside of the category of liberty. Uh, the 1689 Confession actually has a wonderful chapter on the liberty of conscience. This is chapter 21 from paragraph 1. It's kind of long, but it's good, so I wanted to read it all. It's on the back of your uh, note sheet as well, or your outline, I mean. It says this, says, the liberty which Christ has purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the, con the condemning wrath of God, the severity and curse of the law, and their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan, and dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, the fear and sting of death, the victory of the grave and, the everla and everlasting damnation, as also in their free access to God, and their yielding obedience unto him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and a willing mind, all which were common also to believers under the law for the substance of them. But under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged in their freedom from the yoke of ceremonial law to which Jewish, the Jewish church was subjected and in greater boldness of access to the throne of grace and fuller communications of the free spirit of God than believers under this law did ordinarily partake of. So it's really good, right? It's kind of long, but I put it there on your outline so that you can have it and read through it and, and look more at it. It has the verses that are based on it as well. That's, that's where our focus should be, really, when we're thinking about Christian liberty, what Christ has done. 
And we would need a whole sermon or two if we were to try to unpack every single statement that's contained in that, in that first paragraph even. The confession would go on to say in paragraph 2 that God alone is the Lord of the conscience. And that in paragraph 3 that if we seek to practice sin under the pretense of Christian liberty, then you pervert the gospel actually to your own destruction. But the Corinthians here, they have a misuse of liberty. Liberty sets you free. It puts your eyes on Christ. A proper use of liberty would help a person with a weak conscience be edified, actually. It would help him to start to grow out of that weak conscience. But look at verse 9. This action of eating idle meat is a stumbling block to the one with a weak conscience. Now, when we think of stumbling block, we may think of something that trips somebody up. Uh, not, that's not the idea of a stumbling block here, though. The word for stumbling block here could be translated better as a, as a scandal. This thing scandalizes someone. And it's something bigger than just tripping somebody up. It's actually putting this barrier in front of them. We're going to see that Paul's going to use really, really strong language to describe what happens to one of those who actually is stumbled because of your use of your so-called knowledge. And so it's based on their so-called superior knowledge. So Paul says in verse 10, basically, if they see you, they're going to be, if they see you, that is, eating idle meat, they're going to be emboldened. They'll be encouraged to go against their own conscience. And actually, the statement has a peculiar irony to it. If they see you sitting in the temple. Now listen, Paul's not saying, well, just make sure they don't see you there. He's not saying to them, you know, put on your shades, put on your COVID mask, a hat. Nobody will recognize that it's actually you. He's not, that's not his advice to him by saying that when they see you, that's how we think. What he's saying here is that they need, um, they, they, he's not telling them to stay on the down low and continue to do what they're doing, not to be incognito. It's not the point. The point here is that if they see you sitting in the temple, you have knowledge, there's going to be a play on words here. He says that you will build them up all right, but you're going to build them up for their destruction. Paul uses a play on words with the word encourage, right? So, so what what does love do? Verse 1, it edifies. And then knowledge puffs up. Edifies means to build up. Love edifies, but Paul says that this issue of liberty is going to cause someone to be encouraged to do something that actually violates their conscience. Now remember, this is in regard of Christians intermingling with idol worship, with false worship. We aren't talking about personal convictions. And since our text today primarily deals with liberty in that later context, I want to make a small point here, all right? You see, we need to be careful that when we think of Christian liberty and weaker brothers and people with a weak conscience among us, we need to be careful that we don't allow ourselves to fall into a position of what has been called the tyranny of the weaker brother. So what happens then when a, a weaker brother wants to elevate their personal convictions to a level of a moral standard for Christianity or when they want to require it of all of those um, who are members or officers in the church? Again, this isn't the issue that we have in Corinth here. We have matters concerning false worship being practiced by professing believers. But in, in many of the contexts that we face today, the weaker brother is just this person who ends up becoming a legislative brother and begins to take personal uh, convictions and bind the consciences of people, destroying, actually, Christian liberty in doing so. And that's wrong, too, right? That's what I want to say. So the question that we have, that the question is, what do you do? And how do you discern the identity of the weaker brother? We have to be sure that the standards we impose on others in the church are biblical standards. And they're not simply our own personal convictions and ideas. 
Uh, some, some ministers, it's common for this, some ministers require that their elders or their deacons would sign a pledge to never consume alcohol for any reason, even wine. Uh, this, would violate the qualification, this would violate Paul and Jesus from being qualified even to serve at their church. They both drank that beverage. People will say that Christians shouldn't ever dance. I'm no dancing during a church service, all right? I'm not in favor of that. It's the regulative principle of worship. That's not how we worship God through dance. But some people say Christians should never dance in general, or that Christians shouldn't play cards, Christians can't smoke, can't, 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 should, should, should. What is it? We can talk about the wisdom of certain things, but we need to be careful to not bind the consciences where Scripture doesn't, because God alone is the Lord of the conscience. In our modern context, and in the context of the letter here to Corinth, the danger is actually the same. Even though their matter is with religious worship, a true thing that is a violation of God's, God's law, false religious worship, and then these matters of indifference that we commonly face today. For us, when we impose standards that God himself did not, we turn people into legalists. We turn people into the sorts of believers who think that they are commended to God by the things that they do or that they don't do. And we end up thinking that, and we end up thinking things are worshiping the one true God, but they actually aren't. But here in Corinth, these people with weak consciences are made to return to false worship. And look what Paul says in verse 11. Look at the seriousness of this warning from the apostle here. He says, And so by your knowledge, the weak person is destroyed. The brother for who Christ died. Now that is strong language. You're not building somebody up in love in order to just help them by your knowledge. You're actually destroying somebody, and not just somebody. You're destroying someone who Christ has died for. This is an incredibly serious warning. Let's understand what this is saying. He's not saying that the person who has knowledge eats in a temple and this you know, weak person sees him, and then he causes him to take a bite, and then he says, oh no, man, I wish I didn't do that. That's not what he's saying. That was a mistake. The picture that Paul is painting for us here is that the weak person ends up having his conscience encouraged and then he's overcome by the smells and the bells and the whistles that all in, are part of this false worship in the environment. And what ends up happening is that his soul is dragged away back to the very idolatry that God had apparently saved him from. So listen, when Paul says destroyed here, this is the same word that is used elsewhere in terms of eternal destruction. So, so hold on a second. What about eternal security? What about the perseverance of the saints? The apostle should have picked a different word. You know, of course he could have. There's different words that he could have used here. This is the same sort of thing that we see happening actually in the letter to the Hebrews. And what we don't want to do is we don't want to take the teeth out of this passage. We don't want to disarm it from what he's actually trying to say. That's, that's what... Um, we don't want to disarm it because it doesn't fit with the system of theology that we profess and hold to and we're sure is right. But that's what like, Kim Riddlebarger does and F.F. F. Bruce do in their commentaries. And I, I love those dear brothers. They're solid Calvinists. Essentially what their commentaries say is that Paul didn't really mean destroyed here when he used the word destroyed. That's just not good. Paul meant what he meant. Now, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden Paul isn't reformed. He certainly is. That's the consistent testimony of his 13 letters. Paul hasn't forgotten what Jesus has said, that my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me, and I give to them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Paul hasn't forgot that. He hasn't forgot that. We must certainly not forget that. So what is happening here? 
Well, it's the same thing that we see happening with the warning in passages in Hebrews and elsewhere about, profess, about a professing believer who sins and then falls into that sin. What I am saying is that Paul, just like the other biblical writers, will speak using, you ready for this, this is a big word, practice it a bunch, I'm probably going to butcher it anyways, but I'll try to say it, okay? He's using phenomenological language. Phenomenological language. In other words, the language of way that things appear. Phenomenological language. Paul's not overly concerned about parsing out this point. You know, was this person really saved to begin with? That's not the point right now. Of course, he would affirm that those who go out from us were never actually of us, right? Like what James says, of course he would affirm that. But he's speaking in the way that things appear so that we'll understand. He has a situation that is, that is depicting the ch- his church life where you have this guy who is professing faith in Jesus and for all practical intents and purposes and judgments of charity, he's a Christian. You get what I said there? For all practical intents and purposes and charity, this person professes to be a Christian. He's been baptized. He goes to the Lord's table. As far as we can tell, this person is a Christian. We can't pull up the back of someone's shirt and see a big E that says elect. We can only tell by what we see. So for practical intents and purposes and judgments of charity, this is a person a Christian. This is what he says. That's the way he appears to be. It's phenomenological language. Man, that is a tongue twister for me, especially with my dry mouth right now. That's the language of how it appears to be. And then this person sees someone who is part of the church going and eating in this temple, eating meat sacrificed to idols. And so because of that, he's emboldened to go back and he goes back to that and he becomes re-immersed in that and he rejoins paganism and he perishes. It's serious. This is a brother from whom Christ died, Paul says. You have to love how the apostle always brings us back to Christ and him crucified, don't you? And notice, notice what the apostle says. Look at what these, with their knowledge, are actually doing in verse 12. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their consciences when it is weak, you sin against Christ. That's heavy, isn't it? You're destroying the brother for whom Christ died. By the way, do you get the contrast? Look what Paul is saying. Christ died for him, but you can't even give up your idol meat. Look how much greater Christ is. You can't even be inconvenienced. You can't even make a sacrifice for the very one for whom Christ died. You have this knowledge, but what good is this knowledge? Because it's the exact opposite of loving. In fact, it's sinning against your brother. Even more, since the assumption is that this person with a weak conscience is by most appearances is a brother, then in fact you're sinning against Christ himself. Remember, Paul's already established a doctrine of the body. How those who are truly a part of the body are united to one another and united to Christ. Christ is the head of the body. And I'll have more to say about that in coming chapters as well, but this is serious business. Our knowledge, as right as it may be, is not a license for us to do something that will cause another professing brother. So I'll start, Siri, I'll start back from the top if that's okay with everybody else. I I don't know. Pretty good. I'll just take this off, so just in case it doesn't happen again. All right. Now, where was I? Okay, I think this is where I was, at least. Our knowledge, no matter how right it is, isn't a license for us to do something that will cause another professing believer to fall into formal false worship. 
You're hanging a millstone around their neck when you do that, aren't you? You'd be leading them into sin. That's not what our liberty is to be used for. That's not loving. What is loving? What is a proper use of liberty? It's verse 13. Notice what the apostle writes here. He says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. He'll do what knowledge rightly applied is supposed to do. He'll deny himself. And so he says, if food, food offered to idols, right? That's the context. If that makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat. He's not talking about something different here. Meat is the, it's the plural word for meat, actually. And so he's talking about meat that's eaten in the temple itself, and then also the meat that's then left over and sold into the market and is this religious meat. Because he's dealing with such a serious problem of, of consequences here that he would even give up meat altogether, whether it's in the temple or just meat from the market, because it's all related to this religious worship experience, because he doesn't want to make his brother stumble. You see what the apostle does, I hope. Even though he possesses the knowledge that God is incomparable, that, what the, meat, that the meat that has been offered to an idol is less than God, is not God in the proper sense of the term, and so he, technically speaking, has a liberty or a right to eat rather than with this knowledge, uh, to love himself and eat, Rather than doing that, he would love others and not eat. That's the Christian way. He's preferring others over himself. Some of these Corinthians, with their, with their so-called knowledge, they, have use, or they use that knowledge as a license to do what they want to do without regard for others in the church. How common is that? You think you could just live, it's all about you. They seek their own good. They love themselves. And the apostle will have more to say about that as we work through chapter 10. But the principle that the apostle is setting now is that having the focus on yourself is not the way of Christ in the church. To glorify the Lord here, the focus isn't on what do I get and what do I receive. No, it's, it's what can I give up for my brother. How can I love my brother so that his conscience doesn't increase in weakness up until the point of him or her being lost? To take the focus off, off myself, I give up this right, I sacrifice here, so that the focus ends up being on Christ, our crucified Savior. A person with a weak conscience isn't to remain in that condition, right? That, that's never a desirable position to be in. Scripture never speaks of it being a good thing for someone to be weak, to be uninformed, to be without knowledge. A Christian is a person who is growing and being sanctified by Christ. Well, this person with a weak conscience we can see isn't going to grow out of it by seeing your freedom in this example at least. Paul's made that point. This is a religious issue where they're engaging in religious worship. That is, is false worship. But what will? Well, by grace, what will by grace bring them to knowing and growing in Christ is to not have their eyes set on you on this liberty, but to have their eyes set on Christ Jesus himself. In Christianity, the way up is, is down, you see. Less of us, more of Christ. Personal behavior for us in the church is not dictated by knowledge, by freedom, or law necessarily. And there's no contradiction with law and love, but by love for those within the community of the faith. So let's pray, church, without Siri interrupting us, I hope. And then we'll transition to communion. Father in heaven, we know our tendency is to actually be about ourselves. 
This is a word that we all desperately need to hear and understand and think sober-mindedly about. Uh, Help us, Lord, to be the kind of people who have such a love for one another that the unbelieving world looks at us and marvels and wonders, how can a person be like that? How can a person be so selfless? How can a person be so about someone else, even at their own expense? And may they find out that the answer is because you, Christ, are everything to us, because you have done everything for us. You have united us to yourself. You have adopted us, purchased us, redeemed us, washed us, with your very own blood, so that we may be clothed in robes of righteousness. Knowing you, we have everything. It is easy to give up something, Lord, that would cause our brother or sister to fall back into a false form of worship. Let us also not be men and women who have weak consciences, Lord. We pray that you would strengthen us and give us understanding so that our every view would be formed off of what your word says and not what people say we should or shouldn't do. Let us be totally conformed to your word and help us, Lord, to trust you and to be satisfied in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.